Hello, everyone. The podcast you're about to listen to reflects the opinions of only the people on the show, and not the official position of the Daily Beacon, its staff, or any of its editors. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special edition of the Daily Beacon's Politics Podcast. I am your host, Jared Nelson. Uh, I'm joined here today by Zach Osborne, who writes Law Not Order on Thursdays. How's it going, Zach? It's going. It's going. (laughs) And Sydney Tyndall, who writes From My Perspective on Every Other Friday. Yep. Um, So what we wanted to do today is Zach and Sydney especially have uh, quite the interest in gun policy. Um, I know we talked about guns a little bit on the Friday show. We wanted to do a deeper dive into the Second Amendment, uh, current arguments for and against gun control, um, especially gun culture and how that informs all of these things. So what I'm going to do is turn it over to Zach for just a second to talk about what the Second Amendment is, how it works in modern society, and why it was written in the first place. So to start, for those of you who do not know the explicit wording of the Second Amendment, I'm going to go ahead and just read it directly as I think that's a good place to start. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So if we go back and we analyze exactly the environments um, that the Second Amendment originated out of, it was initially established to um, keep the federal government from disarming state militias and then replacing them with a federal standing army. Um, The relevancy of that intent is kind of what is up for debate currently. Um, But more so as we engage in the discussion of this topic, I think we need to understand exactly why people hold on to this idea that we need essentially a well-regulated militia that has become the individual. It is not our right to bear arms, it is my right to bear arms. And so I think understanding kind of that context guides us through this discussion of, well, what do we do, you know, when someone abuses, and I say abuses because it is an abuse, um, abuses their right to bear arms to bring malicious harm to someone who is not intended to harm them. No, that makes sense. I think that the the amendment is something that is so unique um, to American politics. Uh, so often, the arguments that are either post for against gun control, gun policy things, essentially in in America, seem to run up against this like brick wall um, of the Second Amendment that has existed for a long time that the courts have talked through for many many years and many many cases, um, and you know can have your views on the, you know, moral correctness of such an amendment, if it's a good thing, if it's a bad thing, but it is there, it exists, and it is like the defining feature of the gun debate in America. So it's good to understand essentially why it came about, which is, as Zach said, to protect states' individual rights to keep their own militias, kind of like the National Guard is today versus the Army. Of course, now we have a standing army. We've had a standing yeah. army for years. So, And the law evolves. That's not surprising. Um, the First Amendment and interpretations of it have changed as well. But I think that the Second Amendment, really just like the First and some other amendments, really bleeds into the culture of America. 
gives us a different flavor than a lot of different countries, and that comes through what I would feel like fair to call a very deep fascination with guns uh, in this country. And I wanted to get Sydney's kind of thoughts on gun culture, why it is so pervasive, where it comes from, that type of thing. So I have to point out that I come from a family who has always had guns and has always shot them. Um, my family grew up in Greenville. They owned a farm. So like my papa has pretty much every kind of shotgun imaginable. So I don't have some kind of inherent issue with guns in general. I sleep two feet next to a pistol on my nightstand every night. So I don't have just like this issue with a gun itself. But I think we've crossed a line as far as our obsession with it and our obsession with guns that just don't have any sort of use in civilian society like AR-15s. Um, I, I can't say that NRA hasn't had a huge influence on the gun culture in America because they're a special interest group who has funded multiple Republican politicians and is the reason why we haven't really had any um, gun legislation over the years. So I feel like their influence is strong, but I think the gun culture has been a part of America, of kind of who we are for a really long time now. And I don't know, I, th I think the idea that the Second Amendment is absolute is kind of ridiculous. I think that's why we have amendments to the Constitution. I mean, the First Amendment is not inherently absolute. You have freedom of speech with the exception of libel, slander, and direct threats of violence. So. Can you have a second amendment? Can you have your right to gun ownership, but there's increased regulations, like ones that make sense, like federal background checks and um, high capacity magazine limits and possibly another assault weapons ban. Just things that make sense, you know? Yeah, I mean, the courts have said assault weapons bans are indeed constitutional. Uh, we've had, we had one in this country from 1994 to 2004. Um, DC v. Heller, the court ruled that bans against handguns were unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. um, so that is an interesting line that's been drawn in our legal system of what constitutes both a firearm and both what constitutes infringing upon your right to own that firearm. Um, and that, that is interesting for, to a certain extent. I think one thing that, that gun culture has kind of done in this country too um, and I think most people would agree with this, is it's emotionalized the gun debate quite a bit. Um, you know, the Second Amendment is one of the Bill of Rights, which are our most cherished freedoms as Americans. You know, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, um, and freedom to own a gun. And I think that people take those very seriously, in some cases as seriously as each other. Um, and that leads to a lot of you know, arguments that are very much rooted in like a sense of patriotism, um, an idea of you know that kind of rebel spirit that the Second Amendment itself kind of comes from. One thing I thought that was interesting that Zach raised is that the Second Amendment was initially uh, created to defend states' rights against federal government overreach, and it's become much more about defending individual rights against federal government overreach. Because you, you hear this argument all the time, of, uh, you know, we need this to protect ourselves from a tyrannical government. Um, and I wanted to get at least Zach's kind of thoughts on where that argument comes from, if it's valid, anything like that. Well, so in its initial uh, creation and then its subsequent implementation, um, at the time when we go back, when we look at the technology of firearms and what would be considered weapons of war in the day, 
um, a lot of it was in parody. Um, at the time, you had muskets, you had swords, you had cannons, you know, the stuff we see in movies, and I'm not going to go too specifically into any of that because it's not necessarily important. What is important is that if you were a militia, you sought to own those things, and the only barrier of ownership was cost. This is similar throughout the majority of our history. Um, and so as we move into kind of what was dubbed the modern era, technology has started to leap so much faster in kind of the lofty realms of the federal government than it has for the rest of us. Um, I can't own a Predator drone. Do I think that would be cool? Maybe. Uh, actually, yes. I think I'd like to own a Predator drone. Just because. Um, but I can't own a Predator drone. I can't own a tank with HE shells. You I can't, can't own a tank, though. I can't own a tank. I can't own rocket-propelled grenades, though. I can't own the launcher. And so when people say, well, I need my AR-15 because this is a defense against tyranny, I feel like they often lose sight of just how advanced and just how far ahead a potentially tyrannical arm of the United States government could be. Um, I myself am an avid gun owner. Um, I also purchase a lot of tactical gear. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, I enjoy kind of uh, building kits, if you will. And so I've got some pretty serious stuff. I am probably one of, you know, 100,000 that does this. The average gun owner does not purchase anything to this degree, and they sure as heck don't know how to utilize it. So I think the idea that we would be able to fight back against a tyrannical arm of some incredibly well-funded and incredibly well-resourced uh, uprising, if you will, in our democracy is silly. The thing that keeps tyranny from being the dominant state of society is the rule of law, and that we all submit to the law because we all submit to the law. So it's just silly to begin with the thing in modern society. The only thing keeping tyranny down is staring down the barrel of your AR-15. One point I did want to make too, and put a pen in kind of what you said, was that uh, you are one of maybe 100,000 people that you know is very involved in this type of thing. Um, and, and what we've seen too in data shows that Essentially, while gun, the amount of guns sold, um, especially over the Obama period of the Obama administration, increased dramatically, like millions and millions. That actually, the number of people that owns guns, that own guns, is about the same. And so, what you see is those people that own guns buying more and more guns. So the problem is is very deep. It's not exactly wide. But what is interesting is that I think that the problem of gun culture seems rather wide. Or maybe not the problem of gun culture, but just gun culture itself seems rather wide, despite gun ownership being rather narrow. Um, so it, it's managed to pervade like a larger field than like you would think, because I don't even think most Americans own a gun. I think it's less than less than half. And yet you see, you know, politicians afraid to act on this issue because it is so emotional because that culture is so strong um, and I think that does kind of tie into how the Second Amendment has been interpreted and taken as a fundamental right of Americans um, which contrasts really well with other countries right 
when you had in Australia, like just for some context, there were, they had a mass shooting in 1996 called the Port Arthur Massacre, um, where I believe over 20 people were killed. Um, and following that, the government moved to essentially ban firearms in the country, and they did that by buying them back from the citizenry. So they would essentially pay you to turn in your guns and then stop selling guns. Uh, and something like that could never happen here because of the courts and because of the culture. Uh, and so one thing I wanted to get Sydney's kind of take on is it's like, if you are for gun control, as, as I would believe I'm fair to say you two are for some stricter form of gun control, how, does, how do people that see the issue like you guys do move through what is a very pervasive culture? I don't know. I, for, because for me, I used to agree with some of the talking points they give as to why we shouldn't have it, that it won't actually change anything, laws won't actually make a difference. If people want to get a gun and kill a bunch of people, they're going to do it no matter what. But what changed with me was the same thing happening over and over and over again. And it was with the same weapon. And we it happens all the time. I don't know if that 18 mass shootings this year is proven correct because of the way we measure what a mass shooting is. But it has been at least in the double digits at this point. And it's only March. So what changed for me was it happening over and over again and just the little things that we don't do that make sense like banning bump stocks it should have happened after vegas but it didn't um federal background checks and i have a hard time believing that 97 percent of people actually want that have you guys heard that yes that poll uh, for, for context the kinnipiac a kinnipiac poll came out yeah uh, I believe about a week or two ago, and essentially they've had findings on this for years that are 90 plus percent of people believe that a federal background check should be required to purchase a firearm. Right. Um, and their most recent one showed 97 percent, yeah. which is. And I mean that's great. I just I question it because every time you mention a federal background check to someone, a conservative person, they feel that it's like an infringement on the state's rights aspect of it because. To my knowledge, doesn't don't the states kind of have some kind of say over the background check system? Because I know the goal of a federal background check system is really to uh, make sure that private sales have to go through a background check and online sales and things like that. So that's not like just fixing the system we have now is not a quote unquote federal background check. But is that an infringement on someone's state's rights? Ugh. So this is actually a point of contention when going and examining, you know, whether we need to regulate um, transactions within states. Um, and this has been a big point of contention, especially um, as more and more turning kind of a spotlight on face-to-face -face, uh, purchases and interactions as well as straw purchases. Um, to some, and I think that I would actually be included in this statistic, I think it actually does violate states' rights. That being said, I don't think that there's anything stopping the states from mandating regulations on their own. Um, I am curious. What, yeah. what um, at least from my mind, I would think that the thing that would prevent such a system, a federal background check system, would be something like the Tenth Amendment, which says that all rights that the government, the federal government doesn't have a reserve for the states, and since the federal government does not explicitly have the right to do this, that it falls to the states. Is that where you come at the issue? Yes, or? yes, okay. absolutely. I mean, 
I think that if I think people that call for kind of a federal catch-all are wrong in this situation. Um, one, we've seen it before; states are not going to comply with it. Um, I think that a pretty comparable um, allegory would be like the issue of gay marriage um, and allowing that practice to be legalized throughout. I mean, Mississippi didn't ratify that until like what three years ago. Oh, it was after, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, they didn't, Mississippi hasn't, or many states did not have legal gay marriage until the court decision yeah. said that they did. And you saw yeah. resistance to that anyway. And then there was resistance within the state court system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it has to come from the states, because we know that the states don't always see eye to eye with the federal government. Um, but additionally, I think that we also need to, in instances where we're talking about regulating at the state level, we also need an enforcement mechanism. So in the state of Tennessee, we have what's called TICS, which is basically um, the, uh, the Tennessee state background check, if you will. Um, currently, those numbers that come in that system are one place removed. So say I bought a gun and I gave it to you, Jared. Mm-hmm. There is no record of that because there doesn't have to be. Right. I'm of the persuasion that there <laughs> needs to be. A so the only transact. So just to be clear, the only transaction that ticks, which is our state background check system, records is the initial sale. Of the Correct. Gun. And yeah. that's if I bought it where I, at a place where I need a background check, like an FFL. Uh, federal firearms license deal. gun store. Yeah, yes. mm-hmm. the federal statutes exist for intrastate trade. So, say I was buying something from someone in Illinois, I have to have that shipped from an FFL to my FFL, and then go and pick it up, mm-hmm. and then go through the proper channels to do so. But if I get something from somebody in say Blunt County, nothing, nothing. Prevents. Right. I was curious, just as we do like kind of a deeper dive on like the current state of these things. Um, gun show or gun shops are these FFLs, these like federally licensed dealers of firearms. Um, you often hear about, I believe Cindy might have mentioned earlier, the gun show loophole in terms of like background checks on private sales. Um, can you explain what people mean when they say the gun show loophole? So the gun show loophole is the idea that if you go to a gun show, basically you can purchase a firearm there because mm-hmm. it is a face-to-face sale. That's kind of true. So when we purchase a firearm at a gun show, if I'm purchasing from a licensed dealer, I still need a background check. If I don't pass that background check, I don't get my gun. But this is also an opportunity for private sellers to come and peddle their wares. So if I walk up to you know Henry, the gun salesman, and I say, <laughs> hey, I want to buy an AR-15, he can sell me whatever I want, and other than a bill of sale that he might have for just personal finance purposes, um, there's really no record of that outside. Now, obviously, um, would that be legal? It is completely legal. That is completely Especially legal. in the state of Tennessee, we currently only have two state statutes that regulate um, face-to-face sales in these instances. The first is that I can't be sold a gun, and you can't sell someone a gun who is recovering from substance abuse or has a mental Mm-hmm. Basically, so, and the only way, obviously, if you couldn't pass a federal or state background check, that also would disqualify. How are you going to check, and how are you going to, uh, mm-hmm. how are you going to mandate that? Right. 
Um, I have a question for yeah. you. So if you think that a federal background check would be an infringement upon states' rights, then mm-hmm. what do we do to fix the issues in the current background check system? Like, would there still be states who just don't want to comply? I mean, what what is the answer then? This is tough because I think we, we're kind of getting to the point where we start to start to fight the Constitution a bit. Um, I think that it is a necessity. That being said, I don't see a clear path to implementation other than this reaching what I think we're starting to see the early steps of where people are, have gotten so tired of inaction on the issue that they force action. It literally, when politicians, when they, have, they make their cost-benefit analysis on acting on this particular issue, it is more costly for them to just continue to either take payment from the NRA and stay silent or to just discard it entirely, in the case of Marco Rubio, um, <laughs> instead of acting on it. That being said, I think the if the background checks are conducted at the state level, and they are regulated at the state level, and they're held at the state level, and then reported at the federal level, as the states see fit, I think that's a good first step. Obviously, I think we need to either see a similar system, which there isn't one, or we need to implement the system and start to see where problems arise in order to take the next step. But I do think the initial step is allowing those, or is basically um, encouraging the states to the degree that they implement that particular system and that um, we start to see those regulations properly and uh, consistently enforced. It's a good question, it's a hard question to answer. Yes, that is it is interesting because I think that you are so often running against, a, you know, a constitutional system that a lot of people find to be restrictive on this issue, um, and you know, like when we said, you know, often the arguments that at least I hear for gun control are so often look at X country where this doesn't happen, and that's you know, you look at the data and that is true. The U.S. has rates of gun violence that for uh, similarly developed countries are miles above any other country, any other one. Um, but, you know, we aren't other countries. You know, we have a Second Amendment, for one, that often prohibits these types of reforms that people advocate for. Or we have a Tenth Amendment that protects them from being done at a federal level. Or we have a gun culture, as Sydney's talked about, that is so pervasive that it keeps politicians or whoever from acting on these issues. Um, I would like to say... Just to interject. For yeah, absolutely. Sure. Additionally, to the points mm-hmm. that you made, we also earn, or we also um, own more guns than uh, per our private citizenry yes. than any developed nation or similarly developed nation. Um, I think looking at the statistics, the second worth is like Syria, mm-hmm. which I mean, if we look at the general political and economic state of Syria, that's not an apt comparison. They are in a civil war, yeah. so, after all. <laughs> um, and so, yes, it is, like, it is insanely pervasive, I think. Um, one thing I'd like to hear from you, too, and then maybe we can wrap it up to keep us at a nice little special episode length, would be um, both of you, since, you, you know, we just outlined all the frameworks that the gun debate happens in in this country, um, what's, what would be your first step to seeing 
like a type of reform that you would be interested in wanting? Is there a reform that you want more than any other? Is there one that makes sense to you to have more than any other? Well, I guess I'm <laughs> going to have to look into the federal background checks system again <laughs> now that I've heard your arguments. But, um, I mean, I think it, before this conversation, I thought it made sense mm-hmm. to have one system in which the entire country has to abide by. Um, I'm kind of back and forth on the assault weapons ban because we can't say definitively whether it was successful or not, but as far as mass shootings go, they definitely decreased since then. Um, So I don't know. I mean, I wish we could reinstate it with maybe some more exceptions and closing some of the loopholes in which people were still able to buy AR-15s at the time. Um, I, one thing that I think we can do that is not being done or even really talked about is high capacity magazine limits, um, limiting a magazine that can hold a certain number of bullets. Um, I, that makes sense to me. Um, the big, big overlying issue I think is getting money out of politics because then the NRA wouldn't be allowed to make millions of dollars campaign uh, campaign contributions. contributions to Trump or to the Republican Party uh, to be able to essentially buy their influence. Um, but that's that would take either an amendment to the Constitution or re-looking at the Citizens United decision. So it, it takes a lot of steps, a lot of work. Yes. One thing I, I, I thought you said that was interesting and that is important um, to, I think, clarify this debate before we uh, get to Zach's, uh, you know, ideas here for for what he would fix about or change about this system is that um, while mass shootings did go down during an assault weapons ban, uh, most gun deaths do not come from mass shootings. You know, that's right. what we hear about um, because they are so awful and so violent and so, like, stark um, set down, but most gun deaths, and correct me if I'm wrong, are from suicides in this country. Um, Most gun violence is suicides. Um, People killing themselves with guns because it's very easy, and um, or just, you know, random acts of gun violence that happen through accident, or people doing things to themselves, or accidentally, you know, so you introduce that problem into the culture as well, and you often hear um, arguments that are more about you know, training people how to effectively use guns rather than taking guns away as being the actual fix for this. Um, that's an argument I hear a lot that I think ties into the culture as well. But I just wanted to, like, set that kind of, like, feel of, like, how guns actually impact people in the country, like, what their most used um, ways are. But, Zach, please, I'd like to hear what you kind of think about a possible change, what you would like to see change either in either in culture or in law regarding guns in America. So to kind of, kind of continue on your point, so the way that we qualify a shooting as a mass shooting is if four or more persons in quick succession have been killed or injured by a solitary gunman. Um, and so I think that kind of very, uh, very smoothly segues me into what I feel we need to change in this dialogue, and that is the data. Um, I am 
and I've written about this uh, two weeks ago. Um, I am a huge proponent of repealing the Dickey Amendment and allowing the CDC to conduct research on gun violence. Yeah. So currently, just to give the context there, the, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in this country, is barred from conducting any type of scientific research or you know, data collection on gun violence in the country. Um, this comes from what Zach referred to as the Dickey Amendment, which was passed in what year? 96. 96, um, as part of uh, appropriations bill? Yeah, it was an omnibus um, appropriations yeah. bill. And it essentially barred the CDC from collecting this data, and it is still federal law. So since they've interpreted this as being an absolute ban on the collection and then dissemination of that data, I think our first step is, in order to continue this discussion, like adults, we need that data. So when we say absolutely that there is a correlation between the number of guns we have in this country and the number of shootings that we have in this country in comparison with one of our, say, European neighbors, I think that that data solidifies that argument as being legitimate. Because right now we're working on basically a patchwork data net. Um, gun violence statistics come from the FBI, mm -hmm. and while those statistics are very well researched, they are voluntarily gathered. Law enforcement voluntarily sends that to the FBI, and that aggregation of that data is what we're working on right now for gun violence statistics. Um, in 2017, there were over 300,000 cases of unreported incidents that would have contributed to um, potentially contributed um, to a background check. And that's a number that we can't accept if we're going to move forward in approaching this issue scientifically, which is how I think we need to approach it. The second step, I believe, is education. Um, going back to a point that Sydney made earlier um, and about the culture that we as Americans, and I think, Jared, you also touched on this, the way that we as Americans uh, hold guns in regard in our society is unique. There, nowhere else on the planet do we have the society that we have and also have the regard for firearms that we have. And you can argue that that's cultural, it's uh, generated from the media, it's generated from our history, wherever. But I think that lost in all that, we've almost desynthesized ourselves to exactly what guns are. They are tools, yes, but they are tools designed to do one thing, and that is to inflict the most efficient harm on whatever they're pointed at. And so I think as we move forward, we really need to remind ourselves that that is the purpose of a gun. Its implementation can be for defense, for hunting, to shoot up a school. Whether those things are good or bad is interpreted by the morality of their implementation. But when it comes down to it, a gun is used to kill. And so I think we need to re-educate ourselves on just what exactly it means to be gun owners and to have this plethora of firearms surrounding us and in close proximity with us. So I don't have a solution for gun violence, but I think my my uh, lack of a solution comes from a lack of data. So. Can I make like two more points? Yeah, I wanted to ask y'all. Um, Okay, so with the semi-automatic rifles, mm -hmm. uh, fully automatic rifles have been banned since the Brady Bill, am I right? Is that when they were banned? Brady Bill is 92. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay, here's my question, is we kind of got 
fully automatic weapons under control. I understand there weren't quite as many of them, but technically you can still own one in the United States. They're just really heavily regulated. Correct. Why can't we do that same type of heavily regulated system, whatever it may be, with semi-automatics? Is that something that's impossible or, I mean... I think this goes back to how we interpret the Second Amendment, and if we are essentially, if we're handicapping our militia in any way, shape, or form. Um, and I think this is definitely a point that is up for debate, and I think DCB Heller, while it is the golden standard on this, I think that we do need another DCB Heller in the Supreme Court to uh, gain the wisdom of the brilliant legal minds that sit up there, sans one or two. Um, <laughs> but, so... In this case, um, I think currently, and I don't own a fully automatic firearm, so I can't speak to this as effectively as I can with anything else. Um, I think that they have a grandfather system where if it's prior, or like an antique system where if it's prior to like 1985, you can own it, and then you need a class three license to own one, and something like $30,000 to, it's insane. So there are barriers to entry, um, but I don't know that those same barriers are going to transition as smoothly from fully automatics as they are to semi-automatics. Um, given one, uh, the capability of a semi-automatic rifle, but two, kind of the misconceptions about fully automatic rifles and just how ineffective they are at being, you know, pinpoint killing machines. And if you can shoot faster, you can kill more. Um, that's a difficult question, and uh, I, I don't know. Right. Um, I, I, like I said, we only have so much precedent to go about this issue with. Uh, I'd have to do more research to give you kind of a more succinct and absolute answer. I mean, the court has ruled you know, before that you can ban assault weapons, which are often fully automatic. Um, currently, like you said, they're heavily regulated. The court has said that you can't ban handguns because it infringes upon your right to bear arms. Um, so, you know, a lot of this comes down to essentially how they view a certain weapon and whether that weapon's presence in society is overriding your Second Amendment rights. Um, and they've made that determination on what, you know, on different grounds at different times with different justices and different courts, you know, and that's, that is the nature of a common law system is it changes over time um, and goes through many different interpretations. Um, and I think that you can probably make an argument one way or the other that, you know, you could do that with a semi-automatic, semi-automatic rifle um, from a originalist standpoint, since the Second Amendment says nothing about the specific type of gun mm-hmm. um, or things like that. But you can also make the exact opposite argument, which is that since it doesn't say anything about the type of gun, then you can't regulate any of them. Um, so it, you know, it, it really does come down to legal minds much better than the two of us and <laughs> much different, too, depending on the time that they look at this issue as to how we regulate guns in this country. Because, you know, while the Second Amendment is there and it's ironclad, you know, the way that courts read the Constitution changes all the time. Absolutely. Um, and I, I, this is my completely personal opinion, but I mean, you can say that you're an originalist of the Constitution and, like, believe that down to your bones, but it's, like I said, it has changed over time depending on your personal views, depending on your life experience, depending on where you went to law school. 
Um, and it's impossible to know what was in George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or Alexander Hamilton and James Madison specifically uh, when they wrote the Bill of Rights, you know? Yeah. Um, at least those the last two specifically wrote. So you can never figure that out. Um, I do think about it a lot, though. Like, yeah, and what it's would interesting. the founding fathers yeah. think? Because they would... God, I feel like they would be so disgusted by our gun culture right now. I really do. They'd be like, really? We had muskets then. <laughs> like, Jefferson wanted the Constitution rewritten every, every 10 years. Well, didn't Jefferson viewed the Constitution as a um, as a living document that changes yeah, over time, and the rest of them were like, no. Well, he thought we should throw it out yeah. after every 20 years and rewrite something, um, which sounds like a terrible idea. Oh, to yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> and now I'm editorializing it. Oh, no, no, no. That's, I think okay. everyone would agree But... Uh, what wasn't a terrible idea was doing this podcast, and that is how <laughs> I do a nice transition there. Yeah. Thank you guys for talking about this a little bit more in depth, um, not related to Parkland, but just about the issue itself. Um, any final words, Zach? Uh, I think that if you're going to re- uh, review the Constitution in a religi- or a originalist perspective, you have to understand that it's antiquated. And uh, I think that going forward, if that's how we're going to be in this debate, then we have to recognize that that applies to everything. So. Right. I agree with that point as well. And I hope that going forward we can realize that, yes, our rights are important, but are they more important than more people dying? Absolutely. And I don't think they are. All right. So. Well, thank you all for being here. Um, this has been a little special edition episode of the Politics Podcast. We'll be back after spring break sometime. All right. Bye, everybody.